Thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is where we are uh, this morning, beginning a new chapter in this book that we're going through. Hard to believe we've been here now for a number of months. Uh, this is the 21st message. I don't even remember when we started exactly, but I'm guessing somewhere around five or six months ago. And uh, it's been a great book. God has really challenged me through this book, and I hope He has for you as well. So Acts chapter 8 is where we're starting this morning. How many of you would say you are instruction-following kind of people? In other words, when you have to fix something, when you have to uh, uh, repair something or, or construct something, you are one that gets the instructions first before you begin. How many of you are those kind of people? Let me, let me see your hands. All right. You put those down. How many of you, when it's time to fix something or construct something, the instructions are a great place to place your tools before you actually begin. Okay, you can put those hands down. You know, it's amazing because uh, you know, people are just so different. Instructions are helpful. I came across something a while ago that, uh, and you've probably heard some of these before, but certainly not all of them, but uh, some instructions that are found on different products. You, you've probably heard some of this kind of stuff internationally. And uh, it's amazing in this society that wants to sue everybody. Uh, it seems like we have to cover every base. But even there, there's a point where it's just a little overblown. And I think some instructions don't actually have to be listed. I came across a list there's like 16 on the list, but I won't give them all to you. Let me just, just uh, put a few here that I thought were of, of significance. This is on a bottle of Nitol, a sleep aid. Warning, may cause drowsiness. Uh, on a string of uh, Christmas lights that were made internationally, this is what it said on the instructions or, or on the warning. For indoor or outdoor use only. Now, for those that are not quite catching there are no other uses. It, it's, it's either indoor or outdoor. That, that's pretty much it. And there's, there's really no, not any other options. On a pack of Sainsbury peanuts, warning, contains nuts. Uh, on a Swedish chainsaw, do not attempt to stop chain with your hands. I thought that was uh, real helpful. On a hairdryer, do not use while sleeping. <laughs> it's a, that's, a, that's an epidemic, by the way, that's sweeping the country. Sleep. It's a hairdryer. On a fro- this would have been helpful for me in college. On a frozen dinner, serving suggestion, defrost. <laughs> Uh, that was it. And, and then uh, here, let, let's see, two more. On a, on a pack of dessert, a tiramisu dessert, do not turn upside down. And it was printed on the bottom of the box. <laughs> and then the last one, here's one, I guess it's only a fitting one to close on. Uh, on a hotel provided shower cap, fits only one head. <laughs> and so uh, instructions are helpful you got to have instructions, right? They're helpful. you got to have them. Some people follow them. Some people don't. Some people, you know, they, they, they live and die by other people. You know, it's just, just kind of a nuisance. But really, when you get to, down to it, you got to have instructions. Now, here's the good thing. God has given us instructions. And I know this is overblown and almost a little bit cheesy that, you know, to say this is God's instruction manual, but it really is. I mean, it really is. God has chosen to give us everything we need to know in this world, and he's chosen to give it to us probably for you in a nice leather-bound, uh, uh, nicely uh, equipped, probably fairly expensive, and that's a whole other topic, uh, uh, copy of God's Word. He's given us the instructions we need. 66 books that make what we have as the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, every one of them different. All of the books written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,500, different, uh, 1500 years with one overarching theme, and that theme is, is that we, because of our sin, are separated from God, but we can be forgiven and made right with God depending on what we do with this person, Jesus Christ. That is the overarching theme of Scripture. God gives us everything we need to know from His Word. It is our instruction manual. It's the... the, uh 
the details for living that's going to give him honor and glory, details for living that's going to bring fulfillment to our lives, details that prepare us for life here and life hereafter once we step into eternity. And so God's word, our instruction manual, is extremely important. And what we're going to find here in chapter 8 in the book of Acts, and I'll just go ahead and warn you, that the study of God's word is not going to just jump right out at you from these first four verses we're going to look at today in chapter 8. It's just not. But I believe, and here's what I found, is that as I began to dig and as I was preparing for this morning, what I found was is that it's almost as though written between the lines of these four verses, we find the, the supremacy and the overarching need to be saturated with the word of God. I'm going to show you how we can see that as we begin here in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, in a message entitled, First Things First. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Begin there with me. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Let me stop there for a moment and give a little context. You remember, if you've been here for these past few weeks, that chapter 7 chronicles for us the first Christian martyr who gave his life for the sake of Christ. And that person was a person named Stephen. Stephen was a table waiter. You've heard me say that before. Basically, he was put in place to meet needs of the widows in the church in Jerusalem. He was a follower of Christ with a Jewish background. And so Stephen was martyred at the end of chapter 7 for his commitment to Christ, for his proclamation of the truth of the Word of God. And so it says Saul, here in verse 1, was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now let me just take a second, before we pull out two principles from this passage, let me take a second to walk back through that text, and just to pull out some stuff. If you have a passion for God's word, a student for God's word, this would be a great place to take a few notes. Because we're going to unpack a little bit that's here, just briefly, in these first four verses. Verse 1, we find the introduction of a person named Saul. Now, this is not the same Saul of the Old Testament, if you've studied the Old Testament at all. It's not the same Saul we read of in the book of 1 Samuel, first king of Israel. This is a thousand years later or so. This is a Saul that we'll find later in Acts has his name changed, and he becomes known as Paul, who is the greatest missionary this world has ever seen, aside from Jesus Christ himself, who was not just a missionary, but he was also the message. He was salvation. He was the Word when he walked this earth. And so what we find here is the introduction of Saul, who in this context was in agreement with the murder of the first Christian martyr, that being Stephen. In fact, look back with me just a couple of verses in chapter 7, in verse 58. It says, when these leaders, the Sanhedrin, had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named what? Named Saul. All right, this is important. Hang with me. Because Saul here in this context is an opponent of the Christian message, an opponent of the Christian faith, and an opponent of Christ himself. Saul will come to Christ in chapter 9 in Acts. Chapter 13, he will begin the first of three missionary journeys. God will do a, a complete 180 in his life. But in this context, he is an opponent of, of the Christian faith. Now, we would assume here that Saul, in chapter 8, was a leader amongst the Jewish opponents of Christ. Why do we know that? Because whenever it came time to see, Jesus, uh, to see Stephen persecuted, ultimately to the point of martyrdom, we find that 
Saul is the one that the people laid their robes in front of. In other words, he was right there at the very front of the action. There's no evidence that Saul cast a stone at Stephen. It doesn't tell us that in the text. However, indirectly, he was as responsible as those who physically stoned Stephen because he was there given agreement. He had been uh, uh, mentored by Gamaliel, who was one of the leading Jewish rabbis of the first century. And we could assume that Saul here was at the very forefront. He was a very prominent member of the opponents of Jesus Christ. And so we find him introduced here in verse 1. We find later there in verse 1 as well that persecution would begin to break out. In fact, it says a great persecution. Now, this persecution came primarily from the Jewish leaders. Later in Acts, it's going to come from Rome, from the leaders in Rome. But here, primarily, the persecution is against the Jerusalem church, the Christians in Jerusalem, and it's, it's being generated by the Jewish leaders of the day who had rejected Christ. And so this persecution will begin to break out, and it will begin to cause these early believers to begin to scatter. They will scatter, verse 1 tells us at the end, from Jerusalem into Judea, which was a region around Jerusalem, into Samaria, which was the region one, uh, one, one area north, and then ultimately they'll begin to scatter throughout the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we find here that the church is being scattered ultimately because of this persecution that is broken out. Verse 2 says that Stephen would be buried by some devout men. Verse 3 comes back to the persecution. It says, Saul began ravaging the church. And he did it entering house after house, dragging off the men, dragging off the women, so that ultimately they would be put into prison. Why? For their association with Jesus Christ. That was why. Now here's something you may want to take note of. That word ravaging in verse 3, it's a Greek word that's only used right here in the New Testament. Nowhere else in the New Testament is that word, the Greek word for ravaging used anywhere else in the New Testament. What it means, whenever we break it down and we understand it in the Greek, what it means literally is to destroy or to ruin. Here's something that, that, that's important. Whenever you look at extra-biblical writings, what is an extra-biblical writing? It is a writing in Greek for the New Testament, a writing in Greek around the same period that is not Scripture. Extra-biblical writings are not inspired. They're not inerrant. We don't treat them as doctrine. Extra-biblical writings are simply other works that were authored by people, not God, but by people, that were written in the same Greek language. Here's what's interesting. When we look at other extra-biblical writings that use that same Greek word for ravaging, here's the way it's used. It's used to describe a person who was mangled by a wild beast, and it's used to describe a, a person or a, or a troop that destroys a city. And so that word ravaging in verse 3 is used elsewhere to describe the mangling that comes at the hands of a wild beast, or at the, the, at the, uh, at the uh, cause of a wild beast, or the destruction that comes to a city by a troop or by an individual. In other words, Saul was not harassing the early church. Okay? He wasn't just going around trying to make their day difficult. He was not just harassing, breathing out just threats against them. He was going house to house to house, ravaging as a wild beast that mangles its prey, as a person or a troop that looks to destroy a city. That was the intent, and that was the drive of Saul's life here in Acts chapter 8. He was very good at what he did. We don't have time. You could go to chapter 9, and you could find the first couple of verses, chapter 9. He, he was intent, even seeking a, a, a official, formal authority to go and to take Christians from the city of Damascus and to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be tried, imprisoned, and very possibly executed. Saul was an opponent who was seeking to destroy the work and the movement that God had put in place through this the early church. Notice how he did it, verse 3. 
house by house, house by house, dragging off the men, the women, the moms, the dads, the grandparents, didn't matter, dragging them off person by person, house by house. Let me just say this. I'm going to hit this and I'm going to move on. That the way the enemy sought to destroy the work of salvation and the work of the missionary message of the gospel was to destroy it house by house. Listen to me, this is very important. The same way the enemy operated in the first century, he seeks to operate today. House by house. It is no accident that Christian homes are disintegrating at alarming rates within the walls of the church. That is no accident. The same way the enemy operated in the first century, house by house, taking away the families so that the witness would be silenced, is the same way he operates today. And if your family is under attack, and if you're thinking things you've never thought before about leaving a wife or leaving a husband, abandoning your kids, taking off with some other person, tricking off to a new start, you're thinking about bagging up the commitment you made before God, or if there's disruption in your house and husbands, you're not doing anything to try to lead through that as the scriptures tell us as men, as husbands, we're supposed to be doing under the authority of Jesus Christ. If your house is in absolute turmoil and you're just allowing it to completely continue on that track, that is the enemy at work. And I'm not one who looks for the devil behind every rock, but I'm also one, hopefully, that doesn't have my head in the sand. I realize that the way he works today is that he works oftentimes through the breaking up of Christian families because in that breaking up, those Christians who comprise those Christian families will see their, their testimony grow silent as a result. And the work of God in this world comes to the church, not the institution with four walls and property lines. It comes through Christians who claim the name of Christ, who walk with him closely, And if we choose not to recognize that when the enemy breaks up our family in the same way he's breaking up churches and he's breaking up the witness that goes from there, if we don't recognize that, listen, it's a very short period of time before we see the enemy's work begin to take place to the extent to where God's work is not even able to be witnessed at all. And so he worked. That's just a side note. That one's a freebie. In verse 3, he was working house by house. I'm just saying. Now he does the same way today. He does the same way today. Verse 4, what does it say? It says, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. They went about preaching the word, which leads us to principle number one. Principle number one, jot it down, I hope you will, is this. You cannot give away what you have not stored away. You cannot give away what you cannot, or what you have not stored away. I want to just give you a quick illustration. It's nothing real, to, to much extent, it's just very simple. It'll become real exciting if I dump this out down this down these steps. It's just a basin of water and a sponge. Right, you take the sponge, you know, I, I try to wring it out. There's nothing in it, and so what? There's nothing coming out. But whenever I take this sponge, and whenever I begin to saturate this sponge with the water that is in this basin, what happens is, is that what was soaked in, and I won't raise this up too high because it'll splash and Jay might get mad at me tomorrow, is that whenever this sponge is wrung out and squeezed, what was put in makes its way out, okay? Whatever it was saturated with is what comes out whenever that sponge is squeezed. It's a very simple principle. It doesn't take rocket science for us to figure that out, that whatever goes in is what's going to come out whenever we feel the squeeze. In other words, when we take it to another level, we cannot give away what we have not first stored away. When there was no water in the sponge, no water came out when it was squeezed. But when it was saturated... 
That's exactly what came out whenever it felt the squeeze, was what had been stored away, what had been poured in. Here's where I want to make the jump. Here's where I want to apply that to this passage we've looked at. If you look in verse 4, you probably were very tempted. If we're reading this chapter from start to finish, you and I would have typically just breathed breathed right on past verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And then we jump into verse 5, Philip. What an awesome story. We'll get there. We would have just missed verse 4. But there is great significance to verse 4 because what we find there is that when these early believers, and by the way, they were not the apostles, verse, two, verse 1 at the very end says that the church was scattered except the apostles. The apostles remained in Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem needed evangelizing. There were plenty of lost people still in Jerusalem, and the church in its early days needed the foundational leadership they could give. And so when persecution came, follow me, the apostles, the leadership, the professionals stayed there. The ones that scattered were the other members of the body of Christ that had recently come to Jesus. And so the professionals stayed home. The church at large scattered into all the regions, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part, says we'll see. They scattered to the other regions of the world. And as they scattered, what they did was, verse 4, they preached the word everywhere they went. And you cannot separate chapter 8, verse 4, from other key passages earlier in the book of Acts. Let me just walk you through this. Look back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts 2, verse 42. What is the concept we're looking at? We're looking at the concept that you cannot give away what you have not first stored away. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let's look at what was stored away long before the persecution ever came. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then it goes on to say the fellowship, breaking of bread into prayer. And so they were devoted to the teaching of God's word. They were becoming saturated from the moment they came to Christ with the teaching of the truth of God's word. Look over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says that persecution will begin to break out. The first we read of it, for the most part, in the book of Acts. What does it say? What was the cause of the persecution? Acts chapter 4, look in verse 2. They were being greatly disturbed because they were what? Teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There was the teaching, the saturation of the word of God that was taking place in the lives of these early believers. Look over chapter 6. Real quick, just chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Church is in crisis here. There's some needs. Widows are being overlooked. They're not getting the food that they need. As a result of that, what happens? Seven men are called into action. They're placed into service. They're given certain responsibilities. While we're seven men assigned that responsibility, look in chapter 6, verse 2. It says, so the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples And they said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so what you have throughout the pages of Acts are Christians that have come to Christ and they're being saturated with the word of God. They are hungering. They are passionate. They are thirsting for the truth that comes only from the word of God. They're devoting themselves to teaching. They're devoting themselves to the work, to the study 
of Scripture so that in chapter 8, whenever persecution breaks out to such an extent that everybody is being scattered, when they scatter, what do they do? What comes out was what was put in. They gave away what had been stored away. They had learned the Word of God, and then when He scatters them, they begin preaching it. The Greek word in verse 4 in chapter 8 is the Greek word evangelizomai, which is it's a verb which obviously we get our word evangelism from in its noun form, and it simply means to proclaim the good news. So here, here, here's the connection. These early believers had become saturated with God's word, and when, when persecution broke out, when they were squeezed, the natural response was for that passion to be demonstrated in the proclamation of the gospel everywhere they went. And by the way, don't miss the fact that the reason Saul later becomes Paul and the reason Saul recognizes Jesus for who he is in chapter 9, comes to Christ, becomes the greatest missionary the world has ever seen uh, aside from Christ, the reason that happens is because Saul, (laughs) at the end of chapter 7, just heard the whole gospel laid out from start to finish through Stephen who knew the Old Testament and proclaimed it as he was being stoned to death. And the whole reason I believe that Saul would even come to Christ was because the seed was planted by one who was squeezed, that's Stephen, who responded by giving away what had been stored away. That's the truth of God's Word. And so the question when we look at ourselves simply is how saturated are we with the truth of God's Word? How much does it matter that we know a Scripture? How important is it? Is it really even important? Let me just walk you through a few verses and see. You ever had times when your faith seemed to be easily shaken? You ever had times when you as a Christian, your faith just seemed to be insufficient? Seemed like your prayers didn't get past heaven. You didn't even know if God was going to be there to bail you out or to help you out or provide for you. You ever had times when your faith was so weak, so fragile? What does it say, Romans 10, verse 17? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? By the Word of God. That's a direct link. I mean, you probably learned that verse for many of you a long time ago. Faith, how do I have faith? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the Word of God. If, in other words, if we're not saturated with the Word of God, the natural result will be that I'll be weak in my faith. You got a weak faith? You could probably link it back to perhaps the fact that you're not saturated with the truth of Scripture. So you want a strong faith? Here you go. You hold it right in your hands. Just study it. <laughs> Live it. And faith tends to strengthen the more we're consumed with the truth of His Word. You ever had times in your life when it seems like you couldn't shake a particular temptation? You couldn't shake a sin? It seemed like every direction it was coming at you. You couldn't stand strong. You didn't know if you were going to be strong. Psalm 119, verse 9. How does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it what? According to your word. You see, it's the knowledge of God's word, the application of God's word that gives us strength to stand strong. What does it say elsewhere in the book of Psalms? Uh, that we are to hide his word in our hearts so that what? So that we might not sin against him. You see, there's power in the knowledge of God's word. Not a whoo kind of a power that if we just read it suddenly we expect hey, there's power in no it's the living out of God's word why because it's truth <laughs> Jesus is being tempted Matthew chapter 4 the enemy himself Satan comes knowing if he can just get him to sin one time then the whole plan of salvation is shot because the sinless sacrifice is no longer sinless and so the enemy comes and tempts him what does Jesus do he quotes scripture quotes the old testament Man shall not live by bread alone, Matthew 4, 4, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, it's his word that gives us the strength we need. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying. High priestly prayer, one of the most important prayers we read of in all the scripture. Jesus says to the Father, sanctify them in truth. And it's almost as though he says, oh, by the way, your word is truth. 
He says elsewhere in John, the truth shall set you free. And so it's imperative that we build ourselves upon the truth of God's word. And let me just say here for just a moment real quickly that God's truth is sufficient not just for the Christian but for the non-Christian as well. Not just for the believer, but for the unbeliever. You see, if, if you are a Hindu and you live in Bangladesh somewhere, or you're Muslim in Bangladesh, a Hindu in India, you live in some other region of the world where Christ is not honored, the truth of God's word still applies to you as much as it does to a person raised in the Bible Belt. It doesn't mean you can apply Proverbs and expect that your business is going to prosper while you dishonor God in every other area of your life. Still have to have the context of a relationship with Christ. But the truth of God is applicable for every person, regardless of race or religion or background or experience or whatever we've done, wherever we've been. The truth of God's Word stands true from beginning to end. In fact, when everything else perishes, it's God's Word that's going to stand. And so you may be here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ. And you think, I, you know, this sounds like something I really need. I need that consistency. I need that stability. I need that direction in my life. Well, it comes when you begin to apply God's word to your life first in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so why could this early church accomplish what they did? Why did the book of Acts become perhaps the greatest book in Scripture that lays out for us the picture of the missionary movement and expansion of the gospel? Because they responded when they were squeezed by persecution by putting out what had been poured in, and they shared the word of God everywhere they went. By the way, let me just remind you for the sake of time, I won't get you to turn here, but you can ask any of our Awana kids what 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, and they'll tell you. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who is not ashamed. And then here's what it says at the end. Rightly dividing the word of truth. And so his word is sufficient. And knowing all this, how saturated are you with the truth of God's word? You know, I've mentioned before, one of my favorite, if I go out to eat, one of the things I want to drink, sweet tea. I love it. I think it's a sign of an accursed cursed culture when sweet tea is not evident. I'm, I'm almost convinced. I went to Texas once, ordered sweet tea. Lady looked at me like I had 14 heads on my shoulder. Yeah, sweet tea. And it's like, this is te- you say you're from the South? This is Texas? Come on. Sweet tea. I love sweet tea. And you've heard me say this before. When you make tea, you don't just dabble the tea bag in the pot. Well, some of you do, I guess. You, know, you just kind of dabble it. You know, expect, you know, now, what happens? You have to leave that tea bag in the water so that the water saturates, permeates that tea. The heat begins to build and it all works together in some blessed movement (laughs) (laughs) called a pitcher of sweet tea. (laughs) Amen. Some of you are thinking, I want to say amen, but I don't know if I can do it. (laughs) I've never done that before. For some of us, the way we come to God's word is that, you know, we, we dip it in our life. And we think, there I go. I'm, I'm, I'm a good Christian. I dipped it in my life. You know, it's October 17th. I'm going to dip it in my life. Maybe come around Thursday. Got a busy day, but I'm just going to dip it in my life real quick. I might miss the next Sunday because I got a lot going on. And the following Sunday I'll be back. It's been a busy day at work. A lot of things going on with the kids. I'm going to dip my, you know, four, five, six times, you know, we dip the word in our lives. That's not going to produce much of anything. I mean, try drinking tea that we treat that way. It's not drinkable. It's not tea. 
We have to immerse ourselves in the study of God's Word. Not just the study, James says, but the application of God's Word. And I can't explain how it happens. It's not magical or mystical. It is just logical that as we, with a relationship with Christ, take ourselves to be students of God's Word, and we let His Word read us as much as we read it, and we respond to what it says, there is something that happens. We begin to see fruit produced in our life that we never knew we were capable of. We begin to love people who are our enemies. We begin to respond to situations with a patience, with a kindness, with a grace that never was there. And it's because somehow, whenever we begin to read, study, and apply the truth of God's Word, it accomplishes what only He can. And without it, we have faith that's weak. We have a testimony that's silent. We have homes that are falling apart. And we have lives that are extremely inconsistent. Why? Because they've not been saturated with this. The early church was saturated. Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6. And when Acts 8 came and the persecution broke out, everywhere they went, they preached it. (laughs) And it was of enough significance that God chose to record in the Bible. And so principle number one, you cannot give away what you've not stored away. For some of you this morning, you don't need a miracle. I'm I'm just going to say, you don't need a miracle. You don't need writing in heaven. You don't need a skywriter to come across and write what you need to do. How many times I wish I've had that. You don't need that. What you need is just to come before God in His Word and say, God, I need you. And I know I have a relationship with Christ, but I, I really need wisdom here. I really need direction. I really need encouragement. And I'm not necessarily coming looking for it right here this moment, but I'm going to commit myself to study your Word, and I want to do it diligently and I'm going to do it in an ongoing fashion. And as I do, God, use your word however you desire to give me what I need, and God will, God will do it. He'll do it. So principle number one, you cannot give away what you've not stored away. Number two, and we're done. We've got like two minutes. Your inconvenience may be God's opportunity. Your inconvenience just may be God's opportunity. You've just had an amazing event happen in your life. Three weeks prior, you came to relationship with this person named Jesus. You heard about him in Jerusalem, just outside the city gates. He'd preached a message that seemed to set everybody upside down. There were some, a few, who had followed him. But you heard about the crucifixion and the events that unfolded there. Two men crucified beside him on the cross, and there was this Jesus in the middle. You heard the story of how he was crucified, and he, came, he was taken off that cross after he died. You heard the rumors, it seemed, but some you heard too much of it that it must have been true that there were people that came and even asked for his body to bury him in a barred tomb. But somehow, in an amazing way, three days later, he was not in that tomb anymore. In fact, there were even witnesses, as many as 500 or more, that witnessed him before he would ascend back up to heaven. And it was very evident this was no ordinary person. This was God in human form that had walked this earth for 33 years. You'd heard the message that had been proclaimed by a couple of folks in the marketplace. You responded. There'd been a man healed, but as you kind of wandered up that day, you heard that it was more than just a healing. There was a message you'd never heard before, that if you only turn from sin, place your faith in this same Jesus, you can have your sins forgiven. You can have a relationship with the God who made you. You can have a brand new start in life, and heaven would await you for all of eternity. And you did that. You, pl- you prayed right there on the street side. And you gave your life to this Jesus. And you identified with him. You were baptized. And you began to worship with this group that seemed to be growing every day. And yet here you sit this particular night with your family. You've got your wife and you've got your three kids. And you've just said a prayer over that meal. And you've studied a little portion of God's word. And you've talked about what God has done. And suddenly there is a pounding at your door. 
And before you even get up to open it, there is a man standing in your doorway and he's grabbed you around your neck and he's drug you out against your will into the street and you hear the cries of your wife and your kids as you're hauled off to prison for no other reason but identification with this person named Jesus. Do you think it was inconvenient to follow Jesus in the first century? Oh Lord, I don't have time for you. How do I fit you in with all the work that I've got, with all the texts that I have to respond to all the email that I've got coming in. How do I respond to you? We've got soccer practice and gymnastics and we've got work and I've got clients calling. I've got all this stuff to do. Lord, it's just not convenient for me to follow you. It's not the same as it was in the old days. (laughs) And yet it was through this inconvenience, being ripped out from your home, separated from your families, seeing people that were in the church the week before that were not the next week. But the church scattered. And as they scattered, they saturated everywhere they went with the message that they themselves had first been saturated with, that Jesus saves. What had been an inconvenience, God saw as an opportunity. Let me just say this, and I'm done. That I believe that perhaps for some of you this morning, you face tremendous inconveniences in your life inconveniences that are so significant that it has caused you to hurt deeply or to consider even giving up altogether. You have faced tragedy. Some of you have faced loss. Some of you have been through such times of difficulty. Inconveniences, we could say, and that is such a superficial word to use, that have caused you perhaps to even question things that you once hold so true. Don't lose sight of the fact that God just may possibly use the inconveniences that you face to reach many, if you'll let him. That tragedy that you've experienced, you let God redeem it, God will heal your heart, and God will give you a message to take to others who need to be encouraged. That struggle that you've been through, that has hurt so deeply, you let Jesus bring healing to that area, give you wisdom as to how to handle it, he just may use that as an opportunity to lead many people to Christ if you'll just let him. And so what you often see as an inconvenience, what often see as an inconvenience, God says, no, 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 no. That's inconvenient for you, (laughs) but it's a great opportunity for me. And so with heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, and I wonder first, who perhaps here this morning is in the midst of such difficulty, such hurt, such struggle, such trial, such temptation that you think, you know, this is nothing more than an inconvenience in my life to keep me from a deep want with Christ. I wonder who'd be willing to say, but Lord, today I choose to see and to even ask, could this not be an opportunity you've given me to make your name great, to praise you deeper than ever before, and to minister to others through what you've done in my life? For the early church, persecution became evangelism. For you, that burden just may be an opportunity that God wants to use. So how saturated are you with the Word of God? What comes out when the world squeezes you with stress, with temptation, with trial, with difficulty? What comes out? Is it what's been poured in? If you've only poured in yourself and life gravitates around you, then anger is going to usually come out. Bitterness. But if we're saturated with God, with His Word, and if we trust Him with every circumstance of our life, then when we get squeezed, what comes out is truth. We respond to things rightly. We see the opportunity in the midst of the difficulty. 
and we begin to see people reached through the life that we've yielded to him. You know, for some this morning, the first step for you, the first thing, is not to respond to this message by reading scripture or by seeing Christ in the midst of your struggle. The first thing for you to get first things first is to surrender your life to Christ to begin with and to turn from sin and invite him in to take over to where you present yourself as a slave to him and invite him to be master over you. (laughs) That's called lordship. He's worthy and he's competent and he loves you. And so what would you do today in response to this simple message? Four verses with a lot to unpack. What would God lead you to do? And when he leads you, will you be willing to follow? God, I pray today that you'd bless now the responses of these, your people. For those that don't know you, I pray that they'd respond by giving their life to Christ. And for the rest of us, Lord, that have done that, that we would follow where you lead us today, to apply this in a way that honors you and that brings fulfillment to us. Use us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.